ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support the podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, seansrussiablog.org, and hit the Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. If you were an independent, adventurous, liberated American woman in the 1920s or 1930s, where might you have sought to escape from the constraints and compromises of bourgeois living? Paris and the left bank quickly came to mind. But would you have ever thought of Russia and the wilds of Siberia? This choice was not as unusual as it seems now. As my guest Julia Mickenberg shows in her book, American Girls in Red Russia, Many American women, including suffragists, reformers, educators, journalists, and artists, as well as curious travelers, were attracted to revolutionary Russia, and many even traveled there to find themselves and chase the Soviet dream. Julia Mickenberg is a professor of American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She is the author of Learning from the Left, Children's Literature, the Cold War, and Radical Politics in the United States, and co-editor of Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature. Her new book is American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the Soviet Dream, published by the University of Chicago Press. Here's Julia Mickenberg. So, um... You know, there are several books about Americans traveling to Soviet Russia. You know, we know like fellow travelers, mostly men, have been talked about African Americans to some extent. But I think that your book, um, American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the Soviet Dream, is really the first one that I know of that focuses on women. So I thought we'd just start by having you talk about how did this project generate? How did the, the, the topic come about? And, and why you felt the need to write this book. Yeah, and I, I, I definitely felt the need to write it in the way of, a, of an itch that I had to scratch. Um, it came about, my prior book was on children's literature and the left in the United States. And doing the research for that, I would read whole runs of left-wing periodicals like the New Masses and the Daily Worker and... I felt like the Soviet Union was this elephant in the room. It was everywhere. And, but if you read, you know, sympathetic histories of the American left, the place of the Soviet Union is um, generally quite diminished. And so I was, so the, the, the itch part was trying to, trying to understand in a way that recognizes all the ways that it was very problematic for Americans to be fascinated by the Soviet Union, kind of understanding more, you know, um, with sympathy, these people. Uh, the, the women part came about uh, 
because I was looking, I was going to do something on pro-Soviet children's literature. And most of those books were published during World War II, but there was a whole phenomenon of those. And I started looking in the papers of Ruth Epperson Kennel, who really became the focus of chapter three about the book of the book, um, American Girls in Red Russia. She had published pro-Soviet children's books starting in the 1930s. So those are the earliest ones. But I quickly <laughs> not I didn't lose interest in her children's books, but I became fascinated by all the material in her archive, which is at the University of Oregon, that was describing her time in the Kuzbis colony in Siberia. So it's essentially this utopian colony in Siberia and told from her perspective. And she had gone with her husband, um, but once she gets there, she falls in love with somebody else. They left their child back in the U.S. And I guess the piece, the, the piece that initially got me interested in her was uh, Theodore Dreiser had written a sketch of her in his uh, 1929 two-volume gallery of women. She was Ernita. And, uh, and it's this kind of story of this woman who's at, at, um, in the United States, living in San Francisco, bored with her husband, uh, bored with her existence, got pregnant a second time, couldn't have another abortion. And then the Soviet Union was this sort of possibility of, of a new life and social justice and a revolution and everything transformed. And so my my interest in the entire project as it became sort of started with her and her experience in Siberia. But she also talked about other women who kind of... Um, discovered their freedom and their self, you know, they had these sexual awakenings in the Soviet Union of all places. And then through one of her friends, uh, I, uh, Millie Bennett, who I also write about, they also both wrote for the Moscow News, I found this uh, article, American Girls in Red Russia, that was talking about the kind of trend, uh, this was now published in 1932, trend of single women coming to the Soviet Union for jobs because they were curious to meet husbands, just to learn about things. And, um, and that was where it, it really started going. And also having, you know, I'm an Americanist, but having correspondence, uh, having, sorry, conversations with people who knew more um, about Russian history and the literature saying just what you said, there really wasn't anything about, about women. And, um, and the particular, the, you know, the whole range of particular reasons why women wanted to go to the Soviet Union, th those started becoming clearer to me. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you, you, you begin your story not with 1917, but really the Russian revolutionary movement and the fascination around it in the United States at the turn of the century. And so what was the, uh, the, the, Russian revolutionary movement, and particularly the fact that a lot of Russian revolutionaries were women, how did this play into the American imagination at the turn of the century? Sure. And uh, I have to give uh, hats off to or credit to somebody like David Engerman, who really um, pushed me to to look at this earlier period. And I think it's important to, um, or also um, David Fogelsong's book, um, talks about the longer running interest 
in Russia, in the United States, um, Fogelsong talks about Russia as a kind of dark double for the United States and um, interest going further back. And there were Americans who'd been sort of fascinated by imperial Russia, but more generally, uh, the Soviet, sorry, Russia, imperial Russia was um, often understood as the kind of um, epitome of um, an unjust um, empire that treated its people so badly. And uh, there were all these comparisons made the serfs in Russia were freed around right around the same time that slaves were um, emancipated in the United States. So there were frequently comparisons being made. The revolutionary movement, um, of course, there's Decemberist revolt in the 1820s, but the movement that Americans started getting really interested in um, starts around the time, um, starts around the 1860s. And uh, the book that I keep coming back to that actually uh, Russians and then American readers via Russian immigrants kept coming back to was Chernyshevsky's What is to be Done. And in that book, the, um, the woman character, Vera Pavlovna, uh, the whole, the kind of um, liberation of the Russian people sort of pivots around the liberation of women, sort of told through this um, character. And um, Emma Goldman, the anarchist who was a Russian immigrant, um, was so obsessed with that book that she tried to set up her household on the model of Vera Pavlova, who starts this um, sewing cooperative to, um, to liberate women. Um, but the Russian revolutionary movement, uh, in there were, it should, I should say movements, because there were a whole bunch of different uh, radical groups. Uh, but in just about all of them, it was assumed that women would gain equal rights with men. And you had a number of women, many from the aristocracy, who renounced their privilege. They were educated and they were so appalled at injustice that they joined um, revolutionary movements like the People's Will um, that would go out into the countryside and try to um, get uh, farmers and peasants to uh, rebel. And uh, they, uh, many of these groups were terrorist groups. And what that meant was not that they would just kill innocent people, but they would target um, figures who were known for being especially brutal and um, tyrants. And a number of the most visible uh, terrorists were women. So women like um, Vera Zaslich, Vera Figner, um, Sophie Perovskaya, and uh, they would, uh, you know, famously take out these figures. Um, and there were even cases of uh, women getting um, tried and um, the, pu the public supporting them so much that um, they either would, you know, um, get off with hard labor instead of getting killed or even get off scot-free. And they, um, if you look um, mostly at, um, well, I looked, I looked mostly at feminist periodicals in the United States, but in a range of sort of progressive era publications in the U.S., a lot of these women are held up as almost role models, that they would give up everything, give up all, renounce all their privilege to, to fight for this cause. Um, uh, there were several descriptions of their, their tenderness, and they were so 
they were so moved by the injustice that they that they were um, that they found themselves going out and and killing and throwing bombs and shooting people. And this was inspiring to women in the U.S. So you know, it's it's really interesting if you look at uh, and and this even comes up to the present. And I'm wondering if you have any insight into this. The figure of the woman in foreign countries plays and a really important symbolic role as a symbol of freedom or liberation or or oppression. So like in the case of, you know, these Russian revolutionaries, these women who are participating in, you know, terrorist activities or revolutionary underground in Tsarist Russia, they're kind of idolized, in, you know, in a variety of ways. But also we see this repeated throughout, you know, the 20th century, all the way up to the war on terrorism, where the figure of woman the, the oppressed woman or the liberated woman plays as a synonym of, you know, kind of democracy or freedom, et cetera. So do you, do you have any sense from what you looked at why the figure of the woman plays this symbolic role? Well, you know, one of the things that I was, uh, I don't know if I can answer this directly, but, you know, one of the things that I was tracking at the same time was, um, what was happening in the United States. And so, you know, in the U.S. at this time, women are starting to go to uh, getting access to higher education. Women are starting to go to college. They're starting to have certain kinds of professional opportunities. And as they begin to have these opportunities, uh, they start realizing all the ways that they are limited. <laughs> and um, and so uh, the... Um, I'm trying to make sure that I'm thinking about your <laughs> question. Um, so, uh, uh, but so they're looking, so they're thinking about the um, the rights that they don't have in this country as they're um, as they're looking abroad. Um, so, but in terms of the, you know, the um, I think it's partly this 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 question of the you know who is the most. The mo- who's the most oppressed somewhere, and then that's the measure of of a society of what it does to the the weakest people. I mean, one of the other things I looked at was um, children and how children are used as a figure of either hope and possibility, or um, look at the most vulnerable and how they're suffering. And this becomes another thing that motivates American women to go there. So I think it might have something to do um, with that, but. That doesn't seem like a very adequate answer. <laughs> yeah, no, it, no, it's fine. It's just something. It's a repeated. Uh, it's a repeated thing that I've come across, uh, not only in interviews about this these kinds of subjects, but also just looking at the way it plays in in American political discourse about foreign countries. Like, for example, the most recent example is uh, you know the fact that women in Saudi Arabia could drive, and this was the a sign of some sort of amazing reform. <laughs> so, right. Or if we are talking about Afghanistan, it's always you know look at this terrible suffering of these women and what are we going to, you know, this is a reason why we have to do something for them. And- right, right. No, it's just, it's just kind of always struck me as a bit um, odd since, you know, feminist feminism in the United States, when it concerns American women, uh, it's not always embraced by our political elites. <laughs> so, Right. But maybe, yeah. And it's easier to embrace the other, <laughs> liberate these other people. So, um, you know, you, you mentioned this a little bit in your answer, but talk a bit about it more, which is, you know, what is life like for American women 
uh, at the turn of the century and into the 1920s that would make the Russian Revolution attractive to some of them? So really at the same time that, and, and many of the same people who are joining groups like the, the, the American Friends of Russian Freedom, Society for Friends of Russian Freedom, which uh, took off from a, uh, there was a British organization and then American um, organization. Um, and interestingly, that organization was formed um, mainly by children of um, gr- adult children of abolitionists. So people who were active in the struggle against straight slavery and many of these same people were active in women's rights movements. So they were trying to get um, women's property rights, uh, professional opportunities, um, you know, breaking down uh, legal barriers, uh, working on social welfare for women, also for children. And um, so feminism is growing in the United States and the struggle to get the vote becomes a very strong focus. Um, but you also have the rise of settlement houses where women are very active in uh, helping immigrant groups um, get settled, become acclimated in the United States and concerned with a whole range of um, social justice concerns. But I found that a lot of the women who were active in um, the National Women's Party, which was the most the more radical wing of the suffrage movement, a lot of those women especially were very interested in what was happening in Russia. So first they're interested in these revolutionaries who are willing to put it all on the line to make a case for what was right. But then of course, or I don't know if, of course, I don't know if all your listeners will know this, but uh, really right after, shortly after the initial February revolution, women gained the vote in Russia And then it became this big rhetorical thing in the United States that uh, darkest, there were, had been all these references to darkest Russia. Now women in darkest Russia had the vote before the supposedly more democratic United States. Um, So it became this, um, both a rhetorical device, but then also um, all these things that women in the United States were working for, like, um, birth control and sexual freedoms, um, you know, in the Soviet Union, you could, it was not that, or it wasn't easy to get birth control, but women were encouraged to learn everything that they could. And abortion was now available, um, not only legal, but available for free and um, different kinds of um, sexual mores. And women could keep their names um, when they got married. They had full property rights and they um, supposedly every job uh, was open to them. And, and easy divorce, full, too. And easy divorce, um, just all of these things that, that women were working for in the United States. Um, of course, it was never as um, good as it seemed to be on paper, um, but especially if you, were, if you weren't living in Russia from the outside, it looked like the government was doing all this stuff that women in the United States had been fighting for. And so, um, and it was right at the same time. So like you, women in the um, United States finally get the vote in 1920. The Russian revolution is in 1917, both, re- both revolutions and women there are getting the votes at getting the vote. And then all of these laws were passing right after the revolution that were designed to 
um, put women on an equal basis with men. And that was, you know, so more of them could work, but it meant, um, you know, they were putting into place um, or trying to put into place public dining halls and laundries to eliminate so-called household drudgery. Um, they weren't saying that men should do these jobs, but they were finding a, a public way to have them done and having, um, you know, all these legal barriers um, broken down to women's full participation in society. So that was very attractive to to a certain kind of woman in the United States. But, you know, it's, it's and, and like we started off, there's, you know, these, there have been studies done in histories of, of, people from the United States and elsewhere going to the Soviet Union. But, you know, being inspired by what's happening in revolutionary Russia is one thing. And picking yourself up and going there is a totally different something else. So what 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 inspires these women to basically leave their lives in the United States and go to this unknown, albeit, you know, really attractive place, Soviet Russia? Yeah, I mean, there there were you know, it was sort of different at different times. And the book has, you know, different looks at different circumstances. So one of the chapters looks at the Russian famine of 1921 that lasts till, you know, basically till around 1923. And there were a number of American women who went as relief workers um, to, you know, save the Russian child so that the child could become the new Soviet person and wouldn't starve. <laughs> um and this was, you know, there were a longer there was a longer tradition of women being able to um, work as missionaries, and this being a acceptable reason for women to be traveling on their on their own. Um, so there were there were, you know, essentially um, bourgeois women who were able to um, not seem like wild radicals going off to Russia, but in fact. Uh, I focused in that chapter on the American Friends Service Committee, which is the uh, Quaker organization that was started during World War One for um, because Quakers are opposed to war, so they could have they could serve during the war. Uh, they would accept. Uh, they already had women working in Russia at doing relief after the war, so they were set up. Um, when the famine came, and when the American Relief Administration um, under sort of semi, semi-governmental organization took over relief. They had initially said that only men could be there, but since the American Friends Service Committee was already there, they allowed women. The AFSC didn't have any kind of political litmus test. And so a number of radicals who just wanted to go out to, you know, wanted to be able to see the revolution happening and help were able to get in that way. Um, Starting in the early 20s, there were a number of um, communes that were started by the Society for Technical Aid to Soviet Russia. Um, they were like uh, maybe 28 or something, um, tw between 25 and 35 communes. And um, the majority of those were Americans. And as I said, one of my chapters focuses on the Kuzbis colony, which was the most famous, but you could go and sign up for a two-year gig and uh, basically go and work. Some of these, many of these were agricultural. That um, that one was a coal mining um, colony. So people would go to work. Um, starting in the mid-1920s, the Soviet Union has actually opened up to tourism and um, people wanted to see how do you revolutionize really everything? Like how do you revolutionize social welfare or 
housing or childcare or, you know, medical care, everybody who wanted, and especially, you know, with the, um, the new deal in the United States, this, um, planning and, um, uh, industrial, you know, collective, whatever, anybody who wanted to learn about uh, or dressmaking and also artists, people would go to the Soviet Union as tourists to learn about um, how library work is done in the United States or education or, I mean, in the Soviet Union. So a lot of people were going for that. And then uh, by the 19, early 1930s or really coinciding with the five-year plan in the Soviet Union coincides with the depression in the United States. People were going for jobs. And um, when you couldn't get work in the United States, there were all kinds of jobs to be had in the Soviet Union. Um, I wrote a lot about journalists just because they tended to write about their experiences and what they saw. Um, but there were, um, there were women going for a variety of reasons, many of them getting work, which allowed them to stay there for years at a time. And I concentrated on people who went for a longer period rather than there was actually a kind of famous sort of stereotype of Americans who'd go there for a week and then write a book as though they knew what was going on, which, you know, they didn't. And what were some of their experiences? I mean, what, what, what did they relay back to us and what they confronted once they got in the, into Soviet Russia? Well, so one of the things that I got really interested in was this whole kind of question of propaganda. And one of the critiques that's leveled against Americans is that they would paint this, that either that they were deluded and they didn't really see all the terrible things that were going on, or they were just writing lies as, as a way to hold up this, you know, totalitarian regime. And I, I started getting interested in people who knew what was going on. And instead of imputing them with, with evil motives for lying, I wanted to understand why they would sort of, you know, only show the bright side. And, um, and so, uh, you know, for, well, just to back up a little bit. So Americans who were in the Soviet Union had it much better than Soviet citizens. Um, and that, you know, and we've already known that um, they had access to better food, often better living conditions. If they came as tourists, they were often um, shown only what the Soviets wanted them to see. Um, but I also, people who stayed there longer had a lot more freedom, I um, discovered, and they, they didn't only see the good stuff. And, um, but they, uh, those who were <laughs> taking a long view and maybe too long a view sort of would, would get it into their minds that, um, well, you know, we need to, um, these are in the, in the short term, they need to deal with, uh, people who are opposed to the regime. Um, or, um, yes, there's a lot of hardship now, but, um, we can bring some public support to this, you know, especially in the case of journalists, we can bring um, public support to this regime by showing all the great stuff they're doing. And they were doing a lot of great stuff. And, um, and that can help us get rid of the bad stuff, uh, whether that was violence or poverty um, or um, also corruption and inequity and all the problems that come with, um, 
you know, fallible human beings, fallible, greedy, everything else that human beings are. Is is this the dilemma that someone like uh, Anna Louise Strong had in in writing for and being a reporter for the Moscow News? Yeah, I mean, she was a she was a really she was a difficult figure, and I you know I almost I almost didn't even want to deal with her because she was known as the you know the quintessential fellow traveler and also or the quintessential dupe and. Um, I wound up spending um, a significant amount of time, you know, looking at her papers and looking at her writings. And um, she was, <laughs> I, I looked at the, her, her papers, but also the papers of other women who were, you know, supposedly her friends who also worked on the Moscow news. And in her private musing, she would say, you know, I feel like nobody likes me. And then in fact, all her friends would be talking about how much they didn't like her. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I felt quite bad for her. Um, and she was, you know, she was one of the earliest Americans to go to Soviet Russia. She, um, she went there with the American Friends Service Committee. She wasn't supposed to go. She was in, stationed in Poland and kind of snuck over the border and was trying to help uh, in famine relief. And then she got typhus and um, a whole lot of resources were given to keeping her alive. A nurse who was taking care of her died. And then um, she made her way back in. She was fascinated by the communists. She was actually not a communist herself. She tried to join the communist party in Russia and in the United States. Nobody wanted her. Um, I think she was seen as too naive or romantic or something, but she was deeply loyal. Um, and she talked about the communists as these creators in chaos. They were like superhuman people who knew how to get things done, who seemed to never tire, who were efficient. And she had this vision of of, of who she wanted to be and how she wanted to help. And she realized she could help the most by being a writer and telling these kind of heroic tales of what the Soviets were doing. And she was incredibly prolific. And, um, and she also wrote in a very accessible way. And so she was uh, probably, you know, I would say the, the, I don't know how to put it, but people who learned about the Soviet Union and, and, and formed a uh, positive picture of it, there was a very good chance that that came from reading Anna Louise Strong. And she also wrote a lot about Soviet women and all the things that they were achieving as, you know, aviators or soldiers or nurses or other kinds of professionals. And, um, and she started this newspaper, the Moscow News, Moscow, uh, Russia's first English language newspaper. And she wanted it uh, to be a real newspaper with real news, like pro-Soviet, but somehow still objective. And she recruited real journalists to come and work on it. And she was um, deeply frustrated because uh, the communists who wouldn't let her join them, but also they insisted on um, keeping control and censoring and making it basically into this propaganda rag, which is not what she wanted it to be. So she was, um, she was deeply, deeply um, frustrated. And yet she tells in her um, in her autobiography, "I Change Worlds," about um, you know getting angrier and angrier, and then finally actually getting to come have a face to face meeting with Stalin, in which she could express her grievances, and he listened. 
And he was sympathetic. I mean, she was so, you know, just the descriptions of her meetings with Stalin are, are almost chilling because she's so taken in by him. Um, but she's a complicated figure because she, she knew what was going on. And yet she felt that somehow she had a, an ability to make it better by being selective in the truth she told. You know, for these for these women, and of course, not only, but speaking about the women who went to the Soviet Union, leaving the United States, is this journey, and this is this has been talked about in terms of African Americans going to the Soviet Union, the journey to the Soviet Union was kind of like a, a means to reinvent oneself. Yes, definitely. Right? To to transform you know, not only like to leave your old life behind, but really, and this goes along with the whole Soviet project in itself, to become like a new person. Would you say that this is also for a lot of women that in in, in their experiences and how they they interacted with, say, Soviet realities? Yeah, I mean, I, I think just this 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 Soviet idea of a new person was tremendously appealing, especially for women in the United States who you know, lacked basic rights. Even once they got the vote, it felt like um, feminism was faltering in the United States. You get the the Red Scare. In, there's a Red Scare in the United States starting in, in 1919, um, quite repressive and focus on what seems to be very frivolous um, things. And women are still lacking um, basic rights and basic opportunities. And so this idea that you could go over there and become a new, reinvent oneself, become a new person. And, um, you know, a lot of, you know, I found frequent stories, like I said, of women having these kinds of um, sexual awakenings in the Soviet Union, you you know, and you hear about Americans, you know, your listeners are going to be more familiar with um, Russian and Soviet history, but uh, the more familiar story told in the United States is Americans going to Paris the lost generation going to Paris in the 1920s. And that's a kind of, um, you know, it's really a kind of dropping out, getting away. But in the Soviet Union, it was like you could be part of reinventing a whole new society and in the process reinventing yourself. It's building something new. And there was this feeling of this is the most exciting place in the world and I want to be part of it. I want to build a new society and and build a new new a very a, a new self a new me um with all these different kinds of um conditions and it was almost you know i think the fact that it was hard in all these kinds of ways in the most basic way of just kind of material deprivation there wasn't soap there wasn't toilet paper um you know it was you had to wait on long lines to get food like in a weird way that was part of the pleasure is knowing that you were like suffering for something bigger than yourself. Did what about going back? And did were they able to, you know, what was the the experience of going back to the United States after experiencing all of this in Soviet Russia? Yeah. Well, I I if you couldn't tell from reading the book, I became kind of obsessed with uh, with Ruth Kennel. I'm actually working on an article right now about her relationship with Theodore Dreiser. Um, she became his private secretary after being in the Kuzbis colony. But um, 
she writes about returning to the United States after spending six years in Russia. And um, she was pretty depressed. And she talked about being in New York City and being shocked at the extremes um, between um, wealth and poverty that she had seen before, but not really thought about. She changed, it changed actually her, um, she was white, had been born in Oklahoma, changed the way she thought about African Americans, who she'd always thought about in quite dehumanized ways. And then it's not that she lost all her racism, but she started recognizing it and realizing how problematic it was. Um, and just um, really the um, the entire American value system was much was much harder for her to swallow. Um, and she was she's another really problematic figure because she retained her loyalty to the Soviet Union really till the end of her life in 1970. Um, you know, through the purges, through all of Stalin's um, revelations, even um, people who she'd known very well in the Soviet Union and had been close to um, were killed in the purges. And she found ways to um, to rationalize that. And I think it was um, part of it was that contrast of coming back to the United States and feeling like she was misaligned with the um with the values of um, making money being more important than anything else. So um, yeah, I think for people who stayed a, a long period, Anna Louise Strong was a, even she didn't come back until um, World War II. And then she, um, she went back after the war, she married a Russian, she went back after the war to um, the Soviet Union, and then she was arrested. Um, as a spy, which she wasn't. And it was, um, and then she came back to the United States and all her communist friends wanted nothing to do with her because they believed she was a spy and she was then just an outcast everywhere. And she wound up moving to China. Um, and then that was part of the reason the Soviets didn't trust her was because she had been, she thought, yeah, one communist country is about the same as the other. And they, again, that was part of her naivete. And so they didn't trust her because she seemed too pro-China. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, and in fact, the ones who came back to the United States were the lucky ones because the big mistake that any, that, that people made was to give up their American citizenship and take Soviet citizenship. And then they, um, sometimes got stuck there and that was much worse <laughs> than, than coming back to the United States. Cause, uh, if they survived the purges, um, which many didn't. Um, they they really faced tremendous hardship. You know, once you gave up your American citizenship, it was hard to um, to maintain this fantasy about how great things were in the Soviet Union. Now, you you also write about, and and this is a, a famous like um, ev- um, moment which several people have addressed from a variety of different ways, and that is this this journey of I think it's twenty some African Americans in 1932 with Langston Hughes to do this film black and white, which never pans out. But you, you talk about the experience uh, of the women who are part of that company in particular, um, Louise Thompson, who later becomes Louise Patterson. Uh, what was the experience of a- an African American woman in Russia in that time? Yeah. I mean, I got, you know, I wanted to talk about African Americans because they, um, it wasn't that they were large numbers, but they were very visible and it was an important demographic and uh, and that film, as you said, has been written about by many people. And I was trying to think of a, a new way to address it. 
besides talking about the women's experiences. And I started thinking about, well, they went as performers. Most of them weren't professional actors. A few of them were kind of um, amateur actors or singers. And, um, and then when the film wasn't made, I started thinking, but they were still performing because they were so visible. And in, and in fact, they were sort of sometimes unwittingly performing Soviet anti-racism. And, um, and that was very important to Soviet ideology was, um, was this anti-racism um, early on in um, Soviet Union, uh, African-Americans were kind of seen as the pivot of proletarian revolution as, um, you know, the most oppressed, um, certainly in the United States, they were also looking at um, Africans and they often conflated Africans and African-Americans who had very different um, situations. Um, but uh, they talked about, um, they gave a kind of, the Soviets gave a framework for African-Americans thinking about their own oppression in the United States as a colonized people. And they also elevated them to very important um, figures in world revolution. And so for these African-Americans who um, could manage to get to the Soviet Union. So this group uh, went, um, they, they were all professionals because they had to be able to afford to at least pay their own way to get to the Soviet Union. There were others that I, um, that I write about who were active in the Communist Party and came to go to these um, training schools. Um, when they got to the Soviet Union, I, even though the film wasn't made, I said they, they are treated like movie stars. Um, and, you know, everywhere they go, people run up and want to, um, want to know them, want to talk to them, want to touch them. And they, um, you could say it's in a very, um, essentialized way. You know, there was, um, jazz, I also talk about the kind of jazz craze that hits in the, um, Soviet Union and the performers and, um, Harry Haywood, a prominent African-American communist is walking down the street and these Russian kids are yelling jazz band, jazz band. They yeah. just like assume <laughs> yeah. that he's a, um, that he's a performer. Um, but, uh, but in many ways they, um, they have a wonderful experience, um, because they're treat, you know, this is in a period of legal segregation in the United States. And even where there isn't legal segregation in the North, African-Americans are still, um, third class citizens. And here they're absolutely, um, beloved and um, and treated as um, as very special. And then when the film isn't made, um, there's still um, many a number of the people who were in the film actually stayed in the Soviet Union for the rest of their lives. Um, I don't think any of the women did, um, but many in the group got um, at the Soviet government's expense toward Soviet Central Asia, and that was really revealing for them and exciting for many of them because these are, um, you know, the colonized, formerly colonized, um, darker people, um, many of them um, Muslim, many of the women especially had been um, veiled. And uh, they saw these people who had, um, again, you know, cast off their veils, cast off these, you know, superstitions of their religions. And, um, Women, uh, you know, especially um, Muslim women who had been veiled, who'd been very oppressed, suddenly um, taking these incredible um, leadership positions in um, the governments of some of these 
uh, republics. And, um, you know, I talk a little bit about, you know, was certainly more complicated than, than what they saw. So there had been, you know, forced unveilings of Muslim women in the Soviet republics. But what they saw was, or what they wanted to see was women who had, who had chosen this, who had gotten out of, um, sometimes abusive relationships and um, managed to get education, managed to get job training, managed to become leaders. And so it was very, very um, inspiring. And most of these women, you know, talked in very positive ways. Um, Dorothy West is a Harlem Renaissance writer who I wrote about. And, you know, at the end of her life, she talked about this as, as one of the you know, most the probably the best year of her life, and in fact, uh, Louise Thompson Patterson. I interviewed her daughter, and um, she had actually gone um, to medical school in the Soviet Union in the '60s. And she, her mother, you know, really had only positive things to say about the Soviet Union, and even she had positive things to say. Um, and that's with with eyes open. Um, but having gone there in the 1960s you know, she saw these incredible opportunities and she didn't experience the kind of racism that she was still um, experiencing in the United States. So it was a little more understandable why um, African-Americans would see the situation quite differently. Yeah, no, in, in all of the, a lot of the, the, the reminiscence and memoirs of these experiences, even some of those who became, you know, you know, ant, quite anti-communist later in the 50s and 60s, they they all speak of uh, the, having a profound effect uh, on them and their and how they understand themselves, how they understand American society, and also the possibilities of something different. Yeah, like, I mean, uh, even future without racism or like interracial relationships, which were totally illegal. Like you know, all these the men found all these Russian women wanted to be with them because they were black. Um, where it was, you know, absolutely taboo in the United States. And same with the women, you know, there were lots of interracial relationships, which again was, was kind of like a, a reinvention because it was this thing that, that was, you know, you couldn't be in the United States. Yeah, and, and finally, you know, and this goes back to the couple of things you've said earlier, and that is, you know, the kind of standard way of, of looking at these people who went to the Soviet Union and, and wrote positively or had positive reminiscences or experiences is to see them as, you know, as dupes or, you know, useful idiots or, you know, all of these things. And, you know, um, how do you, how do you deal with this issue? I mean, you've spoken a little bit about it in terms of their complexity, but, but how, how should we understand these figures today and what they can tell us about, foreigners, particularly Americans, going to another country like the Soviet Union and, and what they bring back or what they experience? I guess, I mean, I, I, I started really looking at these categories of desire and faith <laughs> and human fallibility, I think were kind of key, key things that, um, that, that came to me. And, and the desire part was, um, you know, some of it was desiring to change oneself, but desiring for for a, a, a better world, which is a longstanding, you know, human desire and or you know human need. And you know, like I said, m many of these people recognized that things weren't perfect; that they were far from perfect. But this feeling that they could take part in 
in making it better. And I just found it much more useful to look at them as, as fallible human beings who want something better for the world, for themselves, and, um, and um, not just fallible, but flawed because, um, because the world is more complicated than that, because there aren't simple, easy solutions. If there were more simple, easy solutions, we wouldn't still have all these problems in the world, many of which were the problems that, you know, that they were experiencing in the 1920s and 1930s. But I think it's, um, it's oversimplistic to dismiss them as dupes. It doesn't, um, it doesn't help us understand what they experienced and those larger um, historical circumstances that drew people there. It doesn't add to that understanding and it doesn't add to our understanding now of reasons why people um, will invest in, you know, revolutionary movement in Latin America or, um, you know, there were repeated, you know, Paul, I, I mentioned Paul Hollander who has this, you know, his book, Political Pilgrims is basically just making fun of Americans who went to the Soviet Union, who went to China, who went to Vietnam, who went to Cuba. And I don't know what it gets us to make fun of them. It doesn't help us anybody understand anything. And these were intelligent, idealistic people who wanted to make the world better. And I'm not going to say that they didn't, um, they didn't do stupid, they did do stupid things. And they were, you know, to, to place faith in, you know, Stalin is obviously not a good idea. Um, but, but trying to understand why, why they did that, or why they, you know, what that tells us about, um, about hope and desire and that continuing need. And I guess the lesson is, it's just, it's never that simple. Um, but, and, and like I said, I related it to, to faith cause it's kind of like a religious faith. There was this amazing quote from, um, Millie Bennett, that journalist who wrote the American girls in red Russia article, who says she's writing a letter to a friend and she says, you would like it here. You see things that would, you know, chill your bones, but what you do is, is what you have to do with any other faith is you, um, tell yourself, um, you know, the facts are not important. And, um, and, you know, she was half joking and half not joking. Uh, let me, let me ask you one more thing, actually, because you do end the, you do end the book on this issue of, of spying and surveillance. And I, I'm curious, you know, uh, some of these figures, of course, had FBI files, they were, you know, investigated, what is their FBI files and how the American government saw what they're doing? What is the image of these people that we get from from those documents? Well, the FBI did not do that good a job of spying on them while they were, they didn't seem to really have the ability to spy on them while they were in the Soviet Union. But they, you know, just the very fact of having gone there was damning for many people. And then they would look at, you know, if they were involved in organizations that were understood to be front organizations, but many of those were working for, you know, against lynching or um, different kinds of social justice organizations that were sometimes um, affiliated with um, the communist party. Um, you know, it's, uh, I started really questioning, like, what is, what does spying even mean? Um, and who, like, 
what are you supposed to be loyal to exactly? Like is, is, is loyalty to one's own country more important than loyalty to a set of ideals? Although then the ideals could also create a false sense of loyalty to the Soviet government, you know? Um, and where does, where is, where do, is personal responsibility to have um, critical judgment? Um, I did find uh, examples of, you know, Martha Dodd as an example of somebody who was found to have, um, she was the daughter of an ambassador to Germany. She was found to have spied. It wasn't clear um, how, how much she had done or whether she'd given any valuable information. But again, I think she thought she was doing something good, um, helping what she thought was a, um, an excellent cause. Um, but I also, I, I partly addressed it. I grew up, um, I was born in 1968. I grew up under the cold war. And for me, it was fighting a lot of these, you know, these cold war narratives of that anybody who was pro-Soviet or anybody who was close to the communist party was liable to be a spy. And I found that to be um, not true. Many people got interested in the Soviet Union because they were, you know, um, they wanted America to be a better place and they wanted ideas for making that possible. So yes, there were some examples of, um, of spies, but I, um, I wanted to also, I, I felt like I had to address that issue, but I also wanted to complicate the whole question and really think about what is, what does that mean exactly? That was Julia Mickenberg, a professor of American studies at the University of Texas at Austin. She's the author of Learning from the Left, Children's Literature, the Cold War, and Radical Politics in the United States, and co-editor of Tales for Little Rebels, a collection of radical children's literature. Her new book is American Girls in Red Russia, Chasing the Soviet Dream, published by the University of Chicago Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter. Like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high well-borns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye! Bye!